For any therapist out there who has ever wondered what intuitive eating dietitians are doing with their patients, this episode's for you. And if you have a therapist right now who doesn't really understand why food is so challenging for you and what intuitive eating means and the nuances of this work, please send this to them. Goodbye diets and hello sustainable health. I'm Elise, dietitian and nutritionist based in the Silicon Valley. I believe that we all deserve an effortless relationship with food without obsession. You might be wondering who I am and how I got here to be an intuitive eating dietitian that focuses on binge eating. And the thing is, I had my own 10, 15 year journey with food, first starting off in high school with under eating and basically anorexia for a year or two. And then I swung to the other end of the spectrum And I had long periods of binge eating episodes all throughout undergrad where I studied at UC Berkeley and even into grad school at UCLA where I became credentialed as a registered dietitian with a master's in public health. It was really in college where I learned to listen to my own body through yoga and sharpening the interoceptive cues and awareness within myself and finally stumbling upon intuitive eating as a concept The past five years for me were the years that I really embraced intuitive eating as a practitioner, and this is how I practice day in and day out. And so I'm a healthcare professional who has had firsthand experience with disordered eating, and right now I am based in the Silicon Valley where I work with patients in the tech industry, rediscover a healthy relationship with food without obsession, and this is the stuff that I love, and in my own virtual private practice, the stuff that I focus on, my bread and butter, is binge eating, overeating, food obsession, disordered eating, and body image, and today I'm going to lift back the curtains a little bit so that you can get a sneak peek into the things that I see, who my patients are, what we're working on, and how to support them together. And the thing is, a lot of the patients that come to me are having a really tough time with food. They are always thinking about food. There is always food guilt. Food has become a very black and white thing. Some foods are bad, some foods are good. And a lot of the time there's a fixation on being perfect. And a lot of the time it all starts out with a fixation on their body. And there may be even a deeper root as to why they became fixated on their body in the first place. For me personally, In high school, I didn't feel like I belonged. I was first-gen Asian-American in a homogeneously white neighborhood, and so I really didn't feel accepted, and I think for me, it was something to do with the trauma, a little t, trauma of not belonging to my community, to my school, feeling so different, and For me to feel accepted and loved and thought of as cool, I thought I needed to change my body. A lot of my patients have a similar story where in order to be loved and accepted, whether it was in their family, whether it was their mom or their sisters or even school and friends and kids in school, the need to feel accepted and loved and cared for and thought of as cool um, and to fit in, it all centered around the body. And so all of my patients are the most lovely, intelligent, introspective, kind people. But a lot of the time, 
it goes way back. The root of why they wanted to change their body goes way back. I explore this with them in my sessions. You know, what is your body story? And I'm sure you know the same about your patients. And so much of the time, their troubled relationship started with that first diet. And because diets are all about rules and metrics and nothing to do with how to cope with emotions and loneliness and unpleasant feelings, they latch onto the the numbers and the rules and everything about food becomes very logical. There's almost a disconnection to their body as time goes on, as that first diet goes on. The more we listen to our brain and logic and calories and rules, the less we actually feel our body signals. And that's what intuitive eating dietitians like to call interoceptive awareness, right? And you might know this too. Interoceptive awareness are the cues that signal for hunger, thirst, fullness, the need to go urinate, the need to go take a nap, all of those signals get dulled the more that we engage in a diet. And over time, we become robotic and numb to those feelings. We no longer feel hunger. We no longer know what fullness feels like. All of that gets dysregulated. And so if your patient is coming to you saying that they're really struggling with food, that's maybe where they're at right now. They might just be a little bit numb to their own signals and they don't know how to listen to them or respond to them because they haven't been responding for so long. Now, I work with patients who are mostly engaging in overeating or binge episodes. And the way that I like to think about it is for someone who has come out of a long period of restriction, whether it was a diet or it was even more obsessive than that, maybe it was a full-blown you know, eating disorder, anorexia, what ends up happening is the body tries to self-regulate and overcompensate by binge eating. Binge eating to me is just like gasping for air after f- crossing the finish line of a race. You're sprinting and sprinting and sprinting. You're restricting and restricting and restricting. And then finally, your body gives up one day and is like, you know what? I'm done with this race. I'm done running. I need nourishment now. And that's when the overeating might happen. That's when the binge episodes might happen. And this is the point that I catch my patients. Now, of course, you probably have patients who are still in the anorexia phase or maybe they're um, bulimic and they can't get out of that themselves. They need more acute care. The patients that I'm working with have gotten themselves out of that and now their body is responding, right? It is rebelling and it needs all the food. There is a physiological demand to replenish. It is definitely like a gasp of air. And the way that I like to describe a binge episode, because I've been in many of them for many years in the past, it almost feels like an out-of-body experience where you can eat and eat and eat and your stomach is so full that you're bursting, but you still feel this gnawing hunger. It's like this hunger that doesn't go away and you have to keep eating. And to me, now that I can look at it retrospectively, I know that was more of a physiological cue that my body's hormones and my body's appetite signals were still really wrapped up even though I was physically stretching out my stomach. So a lot of the times there needs to be that element I think binge episodes, especially straight after a period of long restriction and severe restriction, is part of the healing process. But sometimes those initial binges can become this soothing sort of habit. And sometimes those binge episodes can become 
looped into a subconscious habit over time. That's how I felt when I had years and years of binge episodes, but also when what ended up happening was I was so terrified of gaining weight that after a binge episode, whether it was for one episode or for one whole day or for multiple days in a row, I would want to then logically restrict to maintain my body weight. So I would restrict Monday through Friday or for as long as I could and eat as cleanly as I could. And I hear my patients say this all the time, you know, after a weekend or a week of binging or overeating or falling off the bandwagon, they'll try and be really clean. And that kind of teeters them to the other end of the spectrum. And then the binge is going to come back again. And so it really is this black and white situation, this really awful, extreme sort of wobbling back and forth. So if your patients ever say, I'm feeling out of control with food, this is likely what they're saying. Some foods to them might feel really hard to control. Maybe it's the sugar, maybe it's the dessert, maybe it's the bread or pasta or cheese. But I want you to think about it, not as an addiction. Your patient isn't addicted to sugar. They're not addicted to bread. They've been restricting themselves for so long. They've made it a bad food, a guilty pleasure, something that's you know, comes with a lot of shame and guilt that when they do have it, one, the body has been deprived of it for so long. So it becomes more pleasurable to eat on a physical level, but on a mental level, the guilt attached to it is so high that you know, when whenever you feel guilt, you probably linger on it and ruminate about it and you just feel like giving up. Like, what's the point? I've already done the thing. I've eaten it. It's now ruined everything. So I might as well just, you know, give up and eat the whole rest of the bag. And that is guilt talking. So whenever someone has restricted sugar or whatever it is that they're restricting for a very long time, the moment they have it, there's that physical you know, desire for it, that's hard to control. But then there's also that mental guilt. But if, for example, you tell your patient, and I do this all the time as exposure training, your homework is to eat ice cream every single day, the same flavor, the same brand, it, you cannot miss a single day. Or even better, your, your homework is to eat the same ice cream flavor and type for the next year. What do you think will happen by the end of that period? you likely will be able to have a few bites of it and move on because you have been desensitized to the flavor, to the food. It no longer holds a charge. The more that you restrict a food, the more it holds a charge. The more that you allow yourself and accept it and give yourself that leeway and that abundance for it, the more it becomes neutral. So all I'm trying to do with my patients is to neutralize all foods. There's no such thing in my eyes as an addiction. And yes, some foods are more yummy than others, sugar and bread being a few of them. But you give someone who's starving bread and ice cream and they're going to devour that. If you give someone who's been restricted and deprived and their body is running on low and they're on they're going on fumes, of course they're going to overeat it. So if you are giving someone who has had a really healthy relationship with food, who nourishes them th- themselves to a point where they're actually full and satisfied, where they're not cutting corners, they're not cutting calories, I can, I can probably say that that person will have a much better relationship with that food. You give any person who skipped a meal ice cream, they're going to eat the whole pint. But if you give someone a scoop of ice cream or the pint of ice cream after they've had a really lovely, satisfying and filling lunch, they're probably going to be fine with it, like a few bites of it and they'll move on. 
I've had patients who said that they were addicted to sugar. And one of my patients said she was addicted to Kit Kats. So literally I told her, have a Kit Kat every single day for the next week, especially given a context where you're happy, you're full, and you're you're able to feel more comfortable. And that time for her was after lunch where she was full, satisfied. It was still daylight. She was still occupied and she was stimulated. And when she had that Kit Kat every single day after lunch, by the next week that I saw her, she was like, oh, I didn't feel the need to eat the entire Kit Kat bar by the eighth day. Like I, it was so neutral to me. And another patient with cheesecake, she would have a whole cheesecake after a full shift as a nurse without having eaten any meals beforehand. And so of course she would come out of her like 12 hour shift ravenous eating the whole cheesecake. But when she started to eat actual proper satisfying meals during her shift, she would come out of her shift feeling calm and she would buy the cheesecake and have a slice every day because it was homework. And she was like, wow, I've never felt so calm around cheesecake. So that really highlights the stuff that restriction, deprivation, perceived restriction, physical deprivation can do to a body and how they, how they react with food. And so exposure treatment is one major part of my work with patients. But the other thing that I help them do is to take away the guilt of food. I have a feeling if all of us lived as blobs, where if all of us didn't have bodies and we were just a uniform blob shape, like all of us were the same type of blob shape, that there would be no food guilt. If you think about it, why does food guilt surface? Why is food guilt a thing? It's because, oh no, I had that bite of cheesecake. I'm going to get fat. Or, oh no, I had that whole loaf of bread with cheese. It's going to show up in my hips. The reason why we feel guilty, the root of it, is because we fear our body changing. We fear weight gain. But if we didn't have a body, if we just had a soul and a brain, then it really wouldn't matter. Food guilt wouldn't be a thing. We would just eat to feel energized and satisfied, right? And so a lot of the time, I try to help my patients shift the focus away from their body. And the way to do that is to ask them, you know, if your body changes, then what? Oh, okay. You feel like you can be more social. You can be more confident. Okay. So you want to, you want to be more outgoing and you want to meet more people. What about that is important to you? Oh, you want to meet the love of your life or like you want to make new friends. What about that is important to you? You feel lonely and you just want to feel more connected. Okay, I see. So if you were to lose weight, you would feel more confident to be able to get out there and meet new people, maybe the love of your life, maybe a few new friends, so that you won't feel as lonely and you would feel more connected. Well, how can we help you feel more connected today? Because right now, the only thing getting in your way is you thinking that your body is not good enough. So what if your body was just fine and no one was judging it? not even yourself. How would you present yourself to the world? What would you do? How can you get more connected with people? That's a lot of the work that I do with my patients, which is what are you really going after? It's probably not your body. It's probably something beyond that. Maybe you're looking for affirmation. Maybe you're looking for love. Maybe you're looking for people to think that you're successful. But if you are successful, like you're successful, (laughs) you have your own definition of success and your body is not even part of that equation. So there's that component. Of course, not everything is rosy. The world is brutal. And a lot of the times I'm helping my patients develop body appreciation so that even if the world is brutal and there's a lot of judgment, that they at least have a shield 
where at least they can feel good enough about themselves that they feel strong in who they are. And a lot of that is understanding, okay, what can my body do for me? Even though I don't like my stomach, what can it do for me? If I don't like my thighs, what can it do for me? Oh, it holds me upright. Oh, my stomach keeps you know my digestion going. It holds my body up so it can sit up straight. That's amazing. Can you stay there? If things feel bad, can you stay there? Another big component in my work is helping patients identify what they value in their life. You know, a lot of the times we think about external things, whether it's our body, our success, our the cars that we drive, the home that we live in, all of these showy ego-based things, but you do this too, I'm sure, and I try and do this in my work where I try and peel back the layers and help my patients understand what they truly value in their life, whether it's adventure or autonomy or freedom or acceptance or belonging. Those are all the things that I'm trying to help my patients understand so that they can live a more fulfilling life. And sometimes life doesn't go in a way that is fulfilling or purposeful and we're trying to soothe our emotions with food. That's a lot of my patients too. And sometimes food is one of the only coping mechanisms that one of our patients might have. And that's okay. That's the body trying to do its best to self-soothe. Sometimes it feels like a warm hug, which is great. Maybe you're celebrating with cake for your birthday or you have a little bit of ice cream because you're sad. That's okay. It's a warm hug until it becomes too much, right? If you have a whole season of eating ice cream by yourself because you're lonely or you're self-soothing in a way that's no longer serving you, where the hug becomes a constricting squeeze, then we can take a look and see, you know, is this really what my body wants? Is it feeling light and energized or is it feeling weighed down? Then we have to tap into the interceptive cues of our body, right? Our interceptive cues being, is it is my body feeling lethargic, tired, heavy? What does it actually need to feel light and energized and happy again? Maybe, you know, ice cream every single night of the week after a breakup is not doing it for you. So how can we give your body what it needs? And just like a, you know, just like those kids toys, that square peg in a round hole, if you are tired and if you give your body a chocolate bar, that's like putting a square peg into a round hole. Yes, it might fit if you shove it in there, but it's not a great fit. What you probably need when you're tired is not that candy bar, but maybe a nap. That would be a round peg in a round hole, a perfect match. So I help my patients understand their emotions too. And you do such a great job out there, therapists. I love the work that you do with patients because you do this so much better than I ever could. So thank you. And I try and add on to it as much as I can because a lot of the time coping with emotions comes out in food and our patient's relationship with food. So I take a look at it from that angle as well. And, you know, just like a baby, when we were kids, we knew how to eat. We knew what our needs were. When we were tired, we slept. When we were hungry, we cried. When we were full, we went out to go play with our friends again. And all I'm trying to do is help our patients channel that childlike childlike innocence again with food and just simplifying things because I think we overcomplicate everything so much. And really, once my patients understand what their body needs more and more over time, And once they start to let go of their body goals, 
that's when everything becomes easy. That's when the food becomes easy. That's when they're able to let go of the guilt and the obsession and the binge eating episodes and the restriction patterns. That cycle breaks when our patients can accept their bodies and also when they can know what their body needs at any given time, whether it's how much to eat, when to eat, what to eat. And that's the most exciting part of my work when I can see these pieces align. Now, the part that gets challenging and the part that I think we can work together on really closely is when trauma is a big part of this patient's history. And what I mean by that is perhaps their binge eating episodes didn't come out of a phase of dieting or restriction. Maybe it came out of a really deep coping mechanism from trauma. And maybe there's, there's small trauma and big trauma. At the end of the day, when the body has become so attached to food as the main coping source, that's when we can collaborate as a team. Because in those instances, I can help my patients listen to their body cues and I can help them refine those skills. But the tools that I don't have is how to unravel that trauma with them. And by unraveling that trauma, I think that's probably your bread and butter. And if my patient has a therapist on staff, that's amazing. We can collaborate together as a team. And if not, that's usually when I start to refer a therapist to come into the picture. I can speak to this a little bit. You know, for me, I think I did have a little T trauma in high school being first gen, being an immigrant in a very wealthy neighborhood and not having that sense of belonging and acceptance in my most pivotal adolescent years. To this day, I work with a therapist and we are talking through that because that still affects the way that I relate to others. That still affects the way I engage in relationships with friends and family. For the longest time, food was my outlet. Food was my source of control when nothing felt like it was in my control. But now that food is calm and in my control, the other things that are needing some help are my relationships with people in my life because of that little T trauma in my past. As a dietitian, I think my role is to help my patients identify that it's not about the food, that it's probably something deeper, and that's where you come in. And so that's why I love working with therapists in this space together, and I think that's when we have the most synergy. The end goal for my patients, and this is something that might be helpful for you to know as well, the end goal for our patients is not weight loss or weight gain. Like It has nothing to do with weight. The goal is to really help our patients have a healthy and happy relationship with food, body, and themselves. That's it. That's all I'm in it for. That's all I want is for my patients to not feel obsessive or guilty or consumed by thoughts of food. I want them to be consumed by thoughts of how life can be fulfilling for them, what they can pursue, what they can do. That's what I want my patients to get to. And acceptance is so crucial in all of this whether it's body acceptance, accepting that it's okay, accepting that they are enough, accepting that their body is enough, and being able to think in shades of gray. It's not like if I just change my body, then everything will become better. How can we think about the nuances of that? The work that you know I do is so rewarding to me, and I'm sure the work that you do is so rewarding to you. With all of that being said, I hope you got a glimpse into my work, what I do with patients, and this might also help you navigate your work if we do ever collaborate together or if you do ever work with a dietitian that focuses on intuitive eating. 
if you have a patient who has a dietitian but is focusing on meal plans and calorie counting and macros and things like that, that's another story. They have a different approach, but for a lot of dietitians who work in the food freedom intuitive eating space, I can imagine that this is a very similar sort of process, my process to theirs. And so hopefully this was helpful. And if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. I am on Instagram at Craving Food Freedom. And if you have specific questions about patients or you want my insight, please don't hesitate to DM me. I would love to see what you're working on because you are doing the Lord's work. All of my best friends are therapists and I could not feel more blessed. Know that I love and appreciate every single one of you in this helping field. And until next time, I will see you in next week's podcast episode.